Lovely. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to what is an historic occasion today. This is the last of our lunchtime lectures that will take place in this building as we know it. Uh, so you've all come to a rather special event. It's also the last of our lectures in our series celebrating our current exhibition, Transplant and Life, which if you haven't already seen it, uh, you can view in the museum on the first floor. I am Hayley, I'm the Acting Head of Learning and Events, and I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Paul Craddock here today, um, who is a historian of transplant medicine, and uh, is actually writing a book on the very subject, so we are pleased to be able to have a little bit of a preview on the topic here. He's also recently advised me he's descended from the Welsh kings, um, but... Um, what can I say? So we not only have uh, expertise in history here, but we also have royalty. Uh, so truly an historic occasion. Thank you very much. I, I didn't think you'd actually say that. <laughs> <laughs> if it's historic, I was just reflecting actually, because it is the first lecture on transplant I've given since I um, became a married man. So that's, that's historic. That's nice. Um, I'd like to... If you can dedicate a lecture like this to somebody, I'd like to dedicate it to um, Ozzy Fernando and Barry Fuller uh, for being my sort of gateway into um, modern transplant because I know very little about modern transplant. So that's a modest dedication there. So this, um, this talk is really in um, three... It's, it's three parts. Well, four parts, really. Three parts um, on each of three periods of transplant history, one on 16th century skin grafting, one on 17th century blood transfusion, and one on 18th century tooth transplant. And I, I'll spend roughly 10 minutes or so on each one of those things, uh, just by, uh, but just by way of introducing um, the topic of transplant, I want to think a little bit about um, two different ways we've thought about the subject in the past. So I want to start by introducing this fellow, who's uh, Donald Longmore. Now, Donald Longmore was active at a time um, of transplant's golden age, really. So it's a, it's a time when, when transplant was associated with um, the ultra-modern, so the time of the moon landings, the space race, uh, that kind of era. And he likened performing transplant surgery to trying to repair a defective engine of a single-engined aircraft while it was flying over the Atlantic. Uh, so for him, transplant was a matter of replacing the parts of a failing machine. And he had to manage various mechanical and numerical parameters to make this, uh, this machine sort of buck up again and stop it from crashing. He wrote a book about that time 1968, called Spare Part Surgery. And that title cap uh, captures uh, quite a familiar uh, spirit in transplant. It's, it's the kind of language we still describe transplant in, in textbooks and general life today. So there's replacement parts there and persons, parts, and property. Um, they're, they're books from 2015, 2014, respectively. So this Machine man fantasies is central to the way we understand transplant today. But I want to give you an idea as well of how we understood it uh, in the past, quite 
a long time uh, in the past. The machine man metaphor, by the way, can be, can be found as far back as the 1660s in reference to the, uh, the first blood transfusions. And we'll come to that because it's, it, it comes up in quite a different, uh, quite a different way. Um, before seeing ourselves as compatible as machines with different parts that can be um, taken out when they're uh, worn out and replaced, we still saw ourselves as compatible but as far as transplant is concerned, we related ourselves and our bodies to plants. We had an agricultural understanding of the body. Um, and so to set off the spare part surgery language from people like Donald Longmore, um, I'm going to introduce uh, Ovid, Metamorphosis. Now this, he wrote this in 8 AD, um, and it's a, in many of the stories, people become plants, people become trees. This is Mira, uh, a mer who transforms into a mer tree. Um, but people become animals, animals become people, people become stones. Um, boundaries, uh, bodily boundaries are mutable, they're indistinct in the metamorphosis. So I'll tell you the story of Mira as a way, as a sort of counterpoint to, to the Longmore story. So, so Mira, she was in love with the king, but the king was her father. And for quite a few verses, she concealed this agony from everybody, um, concealed her agony from everybody, sorry. And she ended up attempting suicide. And her old nurse walked in on her um, while she was um, hanging herself. And she ended up confessing to this nurse her longing, her incestuous yearnings for her father. And of course, the nurse was absolutely aghast at first, but for some reason, a few lines later, she managed to convince the nurse to actually arrange this sexual liaison. Um, and she succeeded n for nine nights, actually, uh, while the queen was away. The king didn't know who this uh, person was he was he was sleeping with. He just thought it was a pretty young woman his daughter's age. Um, that's what the old nurse told him anyway. But on the last night, he his curiosity got the better of him. And, um, and he shone a light on his daughter and, of course, was absolutely disgusted. Uh, he raged and raged and raged, chased her out of the royal chamber. Uh, but it was too late. He'd already inseminated her. So Mira ran off. At her very, very lowest point, she lamented that um, she couldn't possibly go on living because to go on living would contaminate the living. But to die would pollute the dead. So she prayed and prayed to any god that would listen for a third way, one between life and death. And that prayer was answered. The earth gripped her ankles and roots formed beneath her toenails and they found their way deep among the stones. Her bones became wood, her marrow pith. Her blood metamorphosed into sap as her arms became boughs, her fingers became twigs, and her skin 
became bark. And this transformation happened from her roots, well, what were roots now, to her very top, covering her pregnant belly. Um, she couldn't cry for help. She couldn't make any kind of plea, but she was pregnant. She was, she was about to give birth. And Heaven's midwife um, heard this creaking and decided to, to deliver the baby um, uh, for her. So Mira's trunk erupted and her bark split and a baby tumbled out and that baby's name was Adonis. Very com culturally, it's, very, it's a very complex story. That, um, but here we have people turning into trees. Uh, we have a, a way of describing the body that is very similar to actually um, Pliny, Pliny the Elder, um, who described trees in very similar terms, actually. He spoke about sap being, um, being the equivalent of blood. He spoke about the equivalent of veins, of skin, of sinews, of bones, and of marrow. And this was all in a much more sober um, discourse than, uh, than the metamorphosis. In addition to Pliny, you also have in philosophy and in anatomy and medicine, you have Aristotle, who had a notion of a nutritive spirit that was responsible for preservation, growth, generation, all of these bodily processes that require human tissue to be, uh, to be created, um, which is also similar to Galen and his vegetative spirit, which is a one of the foundations of his anatomy. And both of these things are processed, both of, both of these um, spirits are processed essentially from the food that we eat, so animals and plants. So a kind of metamorphosis takes place there too. Plants and animals are turned into people or people matter, as it were. Aristotle also had, um, also compared seeds to eggs and called animals, sorry, called plants rooted animals. So in all of those examples, the boundaries between the different kinds of being are not as distinct as we would expect them to, expect them to be today. There's a, but there's a fundamental similarity and a compatibility between beings that we haven't lost. There's a kind of universal life in these um, accounts. Uh, and this arises differently throughout, throughout time. And in fact, it's our anatomical similarities. This is where we transition to the 16th century now. It's our anatomical similarities with plants that helped us to understand skin grafting in the Renaissance in Italy. So as I said, we won't be going into very much detail about these three um, eras. Just, uh, I just want to give you an impression of some of the interesting things that went on. Um, so forgive me for glossing over any complex things. So first of our eras is the 16th century. And this is Leonardo Fioravanti. And he wasn't the first skin graft surgeon by, uh, by a long stretch, actually. But 
he wrote a tract um, that described skin grafting as the agriculture of the body. And in another publication, he called it the farming of men. There was a fundamental compatibility between bodies uh, because of their similarity to trees and, and plants that were, you know, had been grafted for many, many years. Fioravanti is a very colorful character, and there are, there are a lot of stories um, about him employing his urine on his friends' noses and things to, to heal them. But this one is, this, this is just a little story now about how he learned the secret of skin grafting. So he visited a fishing village uh, called Tropea in Calabria. This was in 1551. Um, in Tropea, there lived two brothers, uh, both of them skin graft surgeons. Uh, both of them had been practicing in the same house since the early 16th century, and they'd learnt the skill from their father, who'd learnt it in turn from his uncle. And it was a, it was a family secret, so people would uh, come to them um, to heal the, um, or to treat rather, the results of violence and duels, a lot of duels at the time, battles, uh, various fights, punishments, where they'd have their nose chopped off, people would have their nose chopped off, um, or they might have syphilis. All of those things were rampant in um, Renaissance Italy. And this remained a secret until Fioravanti came along, and he approached the two brothers uh, with a cover story, because of course he's a rival surgeon, they're not going to want to teach this man. Uh, but he had a horse with him, he had a servant, and he passed himself off as a potential affluent client whose relative had been in a fight and lost his nose. And he just wanted to see what the operation looked like so he could decide whether to send this man to, to them. And the brothers swallowed this. Uh, they agreed that he could watch them work. And he, he, Fioravanti threw himself into this role and he, he, he pretended to hate the sight of blood and he covered his eyes with his hands and, oh, don't, I don't want to watch this. Uh, but he made sure that there were gaps in his fingers so he could see everything. And he wrote it all down um, and then taught that to one of his colleagues a few years later. And that colleague's student was uh, someone who you might have heard of, but you might not have done, Gaspar Taliacozzi. Uh, Taliacozzi set out this operation in the late 17th century, sorry, late 16th century. Um, complete with images. So here we are. This is, hang on, I've been told I've got a more powerful pointer. Aha, there we go. So this is a man without a nose, <laughs> but he wants to look complete again. So the surgeon cut a flap into this man's arm and made fresh wounds along the nose there and made sure that when the arm was put into contact, held into contact with the nose, 
those two body parts would adhere to one another. And this is what it looked like. So as you can see, the nose there is joined. Uh, sorry, it's, it's difficult to talk about the nose when the nose is yet to be created. Uh, the arm there is joined to the place where the nose would be. Once the skin has, um, has healed there, those braces can be taken off. It would take about uh, two weeks to a month. And there you are. He's happy with, um, with his new nose. The interesting thing about Taliacozzi was that the first 10 chapters of his book had absolutely nothing to do with this operation, even though the book was supposed to be about this operation. They're about the dignity of the face. They're trying to establish Taliacozzi as a learned gentleman, a proper doctor, not one of these empirics who go around and and try to learn from their experience and cobble together cures and, and learn from old women in villages and things. He wanted to convince people he was the real thing. So he um, spoke about the dignity of the face. He related this to ancient Greek and Roman thinkers and to um, uh, theologians as well. Uh, all to convince you that you know, to lose a nose or an ear or something is is horrific. And at the end of this 10-chapter um, um, piece of writing about the dignity of the face, he does what Fioravanti did, and he compares the uh, skin grafting to the cultivation of trees. And as, as, farmers, as farmers graft um, different species of trees to one another, uh, so you can have a, a tree that produces both apples and pears, for instance. Um, just as that happens uh, in gardening, Taliacozzi felt that this could potentially happen with two human, bein human, sorry, human beings. But you wouldn't want to be tied to your servant or your slave or whatever for the two, three weeks, um, a month that it would take for the healing to take place. But that's the only reason he suggested that it wasn't a good idea. But nevertheless, questions at this time were around, in essence, identity. An identi the identity of, and the status of something that had been grafted. The same questions in gardening um, as there were in surgery. They were the same um, questions. Was grafting helping nature, as Taliacozzi claimed, or was it using natural materials to unnatural ends? Was it creating something, if you're being less um, generous, would you, were you creating monsters? And that's our 16th century little vignette. If we go right on to the 17th century, I've tried to choose pictures that aren't the most common ones of Harvey. Um, so that's why we've got, uh, uh, got this. So the 17th century, have a, uh, it's the very beginnings of spare part surgery. The first little root, uh, shoots, as it were. And of course, this is William Harvey, well, this, this is William Harvey demonstrating the circulation of the blood. Now, 
Harvey conceived of something that was analogous to a pump at the center of a system, and the pump circulated body, uh, blood sorry, around the body, which is very, very different to one of the main theories that it replaced, which was, was the Galenic theory. So before Harvey, many people thought that body parts had minds of their own. So a body part would, might create some kind of resource, but it might also reach out and grab the resource that it needed. In fact, that's quite an apt um, gesture because that's how Galen saw the stomach. The top part of the stomach, he thought, turned into a hand, or I should say metamorphosized into a hand, and reached up into the gullet to grab the food, to bring it back down inside of itself. And that's actually, that's actually an image that Ovid employs as well. Um, but yeah, that's gone now. No, you, you know, that's not how the body works anymore, because now blood circulates. And now we have a circulatory system that you can intervene with. You can make interventions into. So in the late 1660s, you had Christopher Wren, who uh, obviously um, the architect of St. Paul's. Christopher Wren, uh, Robert Boyle and John Wilkins, they employed porcupine quills. They hollowed out porcupine quills um, and used them to make to violate this system, this circulatory system. So they do things like try to feed animals directly through the bloodstream, uh, try to get dr dogs drunk by just injecting alcohol into their bloodstream, which worked, apparently. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Denis in France um, used silver tubes uh, for similar purposes. Um, in both locations, Blood was one of those substances that was injected into a bloodstream, so another person's blood, or another being's blood, I should say, because we didn't use human blood at this time uh, in transfusions. But at the same time as you've got this circulatory system, the blood itself is unknown. It's mysterious. It has magical properties of some kind, but it's anybody's guess really what, what it does. Uh, it doesn't, it circulates, but what's its mechanical function? Well, we don't know. So, why would you want to transfuse blood? It certainly isn't in this era. It certainly isn't to replace lost blood, because in this, at this time, most of the treatments for most things involved evacuating blood, getting rid of it, phlebotomy. The purpose actually was to transplant those magical properties. So what's transplanted? Well, souls, humors, Galenic humors, traits, elements of a, a person's complexion, uh, qualities like anger and uh, calmness and things like that. They were all candidates for transplantation. Uh, that's um, a man having a transplant, uh, transfusion, sorry, uh, from a lamb. Now, in 1668, a physician called George Acton, um, he suggested some kinds of blood 
that might treat certain kinds of um, disease. So dysentery, um, you, to cure dysentery, you would need ox blood. Ass blood would cure fever. Fox blood would cure bladder stones. And cat's blood, I presume because they always fall on their feet, uh, would cure falling sickness. And for some reason, it would cure herpes as well. But the idea was that blood could transfer, sorry, by transferring blood, you could transfer qualities from one being, always an animal at this point, one being to a human. The most famous, oh, this is this, this, just some more, these are just some more images of, of blood transfusions from that period. Um, the main transfusionist in this period that people will have heard of if they've heard of transfusion at all from the 17th century is Jean-Baptiste Denis. I mentioned him a moment ago with the silver tubes. Now he used transfusions of lamb's blood and calf's blood to treat um, madness. A lamb or a calf is a calm, placid creature and it was his hope that that placidness would be transferred to the madman. His, I think it was his fourth experiment. Um, he tried this on a former servant of the aristocracy called Antoine Mouar. You can tell I can't speak French. Um, now this chap was a quite a sinister chap. He was, um, he, he was a wife beater and you could find him rambling around Paris uh, with no clothes on. So an ideal experiment for, for Denis. Um, so he transfused lamb's blood three times. And amazingly, he survived two occasions. But on the third, after the third attempt, he died. And he was taken to court, Denis was taken to court uh, by a rival physician, an anti-transfusionist physician, and charged with murder. But the twist came that on the third occasion, the transfusion hadn't even taken place. He'd survived all of the transfusions, actually, that he was given. And that's because you can actually take a little bit of, of, of blood that doesn't actually suit your system, even animal blood. And you'd get a fever, and you'd, you'd become agit agitated, might be an understatement, but you'd, you'd have a fit. And then you'd be too tired to act mad, so it looked like it worked until you recovered, and then you did a top-up, you see. Uh, but anyway, what actually happened is that this anti-transfusionist physician worked in cahoots with um, this man's wife, and she put arsenic into his soup and made a show of tasting it but really discarding it under the table before, um, before obviously giving it to him. So Denis was acquitted, um, but transfusion had gained a reputation for sort of meddling in, in the order of things, and it was effectively abandoned until the, until the 19th century. But the idea for Denis was to transplant personalities, and a lot of French commentary on this 
it just shows how terrified people were that they would turn into cows and turning to sheep and, and, and these qualities would actually um, manifest themselves in physical transformation. Again, we get the metamorphosis theme. Um, if you go away from France and come to England, um, well, the English seem to find it pretty absurd, and they wrote silly plays about it. In fact, one play, Tarugo's Wiles, which was written uh, by Sir Thomas St. Cerf uh, in 1668, um, it, and it was actually performed at the Duke of York Theatre, which uh, stood on this very row on Lincoln Inn Fields, Lincoln's Inn Fields. Um, I think it's where the um, where this where part of this uh, building is now, one of the newer parts. Um, but anyway, in this in this play, some customers are chatting in a coffee shop, and they're having a debate about this new invention of a transfusion of blood. And one person says that, well, I can perpetuate myself to eternity. I just need to have a transfusion of hog's blood. Uh, then he can return to 15 again. And then one of his coffee-drinking companions says, well, I, I know an 88-year-old usurer, and he bought the body of a young Welsh thief. And it worked. He became young again, but he started to steal cheese. And then the first fellow pipes up again, and he says, well, I, my hobby is to search for jackdaw nests, so I'm going to get myself a transfusion of goat blood. Another play, Thomas Shadwell, quite a similar theme. Uh, he wants to create an army of sheepmen so he can take all of their wool and make clothes, and thus his fortune. So the 17th century, it's about the transplantation of qualities via blood transfusion. Again, we've got the fear and the ridicule and the hope that this process can affect identity. Again, metamorphosis. But it's also starting to look silly uh, to some. Oh, I should say that it's, uh, it was more immediate in this, these concerns about identity transformation were more immediate in this era because, uh, of course, we're now inside of the body and dealing with mysterious things we know nothing about. So that's the 17th century vignette. Now we go to the 18th century, the start of commercial transplant. The 18th century is, of course, a very, very complex subject. Um, but it's where the seeds of our modern consumer culture were sown, really. And we start to see a change in our ideas about, well, many things, but particularly capitalism, the free market economy, commercial enterprise, those kinds of things become, well, they boom in this period. And as part of that, the body becomes seen as a possession, more as a possession. And you can buy prosthetics to adorn it. You can, um, you can buy uh, lots of different clothes to fashion yourself. In fact, fashion became a big thing at this point as well. This is a world where the, where the identity of a person was composed. It wasn't given. So this is Celia here. 
Celia is retiring to bed, but she doesn't want to ruin all of the body parts she she's bought to replace the ones that have worn out with her own old age. So she's taken off her wig, she's taken out of her glass high, and she's taken out her false teeth, and she's given it to her maidservant to look after for the night. To Celia, you might as well add teeth, because this is the era of the tooth transplant. And this is perhaps the most famous depiction of it uh, by Thomas Rowlandson. And it depicts essentially a production line. In the middle, you've got the poor street urchin, the chimney sweep. There are always chimney sweeps in, in, uh, in the literature about this for some reason. Um, and he's having his tooth taken out, and the woman next to him sniffing her smelling salts. She's waiting to have that tooth implanted into, into her uh, mouth. On the left side, we've got two children, each clutching their mouths and, and some money that they've made in this transaction. And on the right, we've got high society celebrating the doctor's work, just admiring themselves in the mirror. There's a lot there in that picture. And it describes, or it depicts rather, a social situation uh, where dentistry has become a commercial enterprise, like many things at this point. Um, a professionalized body has reached such a a degree of um, professionalization and commercial savvy that there are people like this man here um, setting up shop as dentists exclusively for society. Dentists become part of the financial economy. You can buy teeth, or they can, you can't, but they could buy teeth from resurrectionists, uh, from, from bodies, um, from people who would take them from bodies out of the ground. You could buy them from battlefields, buy the barrel full. That was called Waterloo Teeth. And of course, like um, is depicted here, you can buy them directly from children. So this bodily transaction is also a financial transaction, and it's quite overt. It's quite clear in this, uh, in this period. So a lot of the commentary is about, is the same as the commentary about around transplant today. It's about the body as property, the ethics of taking children's teeth, uh, but things like black markets as well. And a scientific theory supports what this man is doing. And this is where we get to John Hunter. Now, John Hunter is known for many, many things, for systematizing um, a lot of medicine and anatomy and uh, lots of experiments and uh, theories and, um, and activities around, around anatomy. But people tend not to speak too much about his vitalism, which is a shame because it's, 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 it's core to his ideas around transplant. Now, John Hunter looked for years for a body part that was responsible for life um, in all beings. Hearts and brains were early, early um, candidates for him, but he decided against these because jellyfish don't have those things. Uh, they're alive, certainly, and also plants and trees, they're also alive. 
What every single living thing has in common, Hunter said, was some kind of circulating fluid, blood, or sap in trees. And in fact, you can have a transplant because of that um, circulating fluid. So this is what um, specimen P56 on the screen there um, represents. You have the cockerel's comb, which is highly vascular, full of, you know, full of blood vessels, a lot of vital principle. And you've got a human tooth, which was taken from probably a, a, a child that he paid. And that was stuck inside of the cockerel's comb. Now, he thought that the vital principle in the blood had made its way inside of the tooth, and the cockerel had effectively adopted that tooth. Um, I, I think he actually just stuck it in there, but um, the theory was that it was adopted. And this idea gave dentists the confidence that this technique um, was, you know, had scientific backing, as it were, um, and it made the product more saleable. So if you're rich and you'd lost a tooth, you can buy one, and it's backed up by science, or at least this theory of vitalism. The theory of vi his theory of vitalism um, was quite similar to this metamorphosis idea of a, 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 a universal life force. Um, but he located it inside of the blood. So this vitalism allowed transplant to be part of the, consumer, the wider consumer society because bodies can now adopt other parts as part of that composition of identity. And that's the 18th century. So to just, just to sum up, I've sort of I've taken you through three quite diverse and quite dense um, centuries there. We just touched on some of the um, highlights. Um, from the 16th century where people understood, we understood ourselves in reference to other, other, other examples of life like plants. So we understood grafting because we were similar to plants. And this belief that beings, living things are fundamentally the same or similar doesn't go away. We, this stays with us until today. We have it in the spare part surgery um, language as well. Then in the 17th century, we've got the first mechanical images of the body that raise fears of further, more extreme metamorphosis. So what happens now that the blood is, a is subject to mechanical um, uh, manipulation? And it could potentially belong to anybody. Then in the 18th century, the body becomes another kind, sorry, the body has another kind of commonality um, where identity is composed. Um, and then in the 19th century, we've got more blood transfusions. In the 20th century, there are people in this room that know much more about that kind of transplant than I do. Uh, so I'm going to end there, and thank you very much for listening. I know why I'm moving that away.
Oh, um, yes, could I take any questions? <laughs> No is also a fine answer. Then I'll pass to you. Thank you. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure if you do have any questions you just want to ask, I'm sure Paul is happy to hang around towards the end and you can speak to him yourself. But yet again, I'd like to thank Paul for his talk today. And um, I hope that uh, this has made a fitting end to uh, both our current exhibition series and also to the exhibition itself which you'll be finishing on the 20th of May 2017 uh, which is also the last evening the last day and the last evening that the museum is open uh, before we have to close it in preparation for project transform which is the complete transformation of the Royal College of Surgeons here I know met exactly as the gentleman says metamorphosis all over the place um, for those of you who have been following us over these many years, uh, you'll be pleased to know that we aren't just going to go quietly into that dark night. Uh, the intention is that working with outside organisations and other heritage organisations, we will endeavour to continue to deliver programmes of lunchtime lectures, potentially evening events and family workshops um, outside of the museum. And then when we reopen in what is now seeming to be autumn 2020, uh, we hope to welcome you back here to a new, better accessed museum uh, with interesting new displays and elements to it. So for those of you who have followed us for many years, thank you all very much for doing so. Uh, your presence has always been gratefully noted. And please do keep thinking of us over the next few years and come back again. Thank you. <laughs>